Good morning. It's great to see all of you this morning. Thank you for being here. If we haven't met, as Kevin just said, my name is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here. Again, thank you for coming this morning. Please turn with me uh, in your uh, scriptures this morning to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 15 through 21. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. And uh, it is a good day here. Um, God is at work. It's great, as we've said and heard, to see children who've grown up here uh, join our church to see new members. I heard this morning about a man who's come to faith recently through the ministry of someone at our church. So lots of things to praise God for, even as we praise Him now that we get to look at His Word. So Galatians chapter 2, let me try to give you a taste of why you need this passage, though, before we read it. Uh, Many of you have heard of a man named um, Ernest Shackleton, a great polar explorer, from the United Kingdom in the early 20th century. A lot of men who were great explorers are famous because they were the first somewhere. They found something that people from their country hadn't found before. Uh, This man, a great polar explorer, is not famous for being the first or for finding something new, but for never getting to where he tried to go. But he's famous uh, because in the midst of his expedition falling apart, he somehow held his crew together. His goal was at first to be the first man to the South Pole, but someone beat him there. So not to be deterred, he fell back and came up with another great expedition. I'll be the first man to cross Antarctica. I don't know why. That sounds terrible to me. This is about as cold as I like it to get. But he says, I know if I can't be the first to the South Pole, I'll be the first to get there from one side, keep going past it all the way to the other side. So he raises money, he recruits a crew, he finds a ship, he makes all of his plans. And in late 1914, he and his crew depart on a ship named Endurance to the shores of Antarctica, except they never even made it to the shore of Antarctica because they got stuck in the crushing ice flows. Their ship became moored and could not pass through the ice. And there's nothing you can do at that point but wait. And they waited and hoped that as spring came, uh, the ice might melt, crack, and they could navigate either towards Antarctica or back home. But instead of the ice breaking and moving away, the ice began to slowly crush their ship. And after hanging out on an iceberg for almost a year, waiting, they watched their ship sink. Down it goes. And they're left standing on an iceberg, an ice floe. And they've got a few lifeboats, they've got some provisions, and they decide, well, we can go forward to Antarctica or back. And they decide, we're going back. And then they begin hiking across the ice, navigating around the cracks, the crevices, taking the ice boats. They launch our, the lifeboats, which are pretty much ice boats at that point. They launch them out. They go across water, they go across land, and they eventually make it back to civilization. Now, remember I said they left in 1914 in 1917. No one had heard from them. You can imagine the extreme situations that they faced physically, emotionally, socially, as they navigate out together over these years of being lost in the wild. But he said of all those nights of polar exploration, his worst one was this. They were in an emergency hut that they were in somewhere, and everyone had been given their last bit of food. The last rations were handed out. Everybody got their last biscuit. And these weren't biscuits like your grandmother made. These were a little bit different. But they handed out the last biscuit, and they all went to sleep. Except Shackleton was still awake, but he wasn't moving. So as he was watching his men being very still, he noticed 
one other man looking around, seeing if everybody was asleep, and apparently he was satisfied that everyone else was asleep, and he reaches across the body of the man sleeping next to him, his comrade, takes his ration bag and pulls it back to himself. And Shackleton said, I spent an eternity in suspense. I would have trusted, he said, this man with my life. And yet here, at the most bleak moment, he's actually stealing the last biscuit from one of our friends. And as he waited, he didn't say anything. He noticed the man then open his own ration bag, take out his last biscuit, put it in his friend's bag, and then put his friend's bag with two biscuits in it back beside him. And he said, I will never tell you that man's name because I felt it to be a secret between himself and God. That's a story of love. It's a story of sacrifice. Stories like that always capture our imagination. And it's worth stopping and asking why. Why do stories like that capture our imagination? Why do we love to hear stories like that? Why are we moved by it? And I would put before you there's lots of reasons, but there's at least two main ones. One I think we all want to be loved like that. We all want to know that there is someone who would love and sacrifice for us. That when push came to shove, somebody would be there. I think we also love stories like that because we need to love like that also. Not only were we made to receive love, but thankfully we were also made to give love. We need to be loved and we need to love. And that's why stories like that capture our imagination. Could you ever love like that? If you could, how? How would you do that? I think this passage before us, Galatians 2, 15 through 21, show us both those things, that we have been loved like that and that we can love like that. So let's read God's Word together this morning. Verse 15, "'We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners.'" Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, again, our hearts are full. Our hearts are full because you are a loving, gracious, giving, merciful, kind God. And you have given us so much. You have especially given us everything we need in Jesus Christ. And these words that we just read together show that so magnificently and beautifully. Father, my words this morning, I feel, cannot do these verses justice. The great truth, the great grace, the great love that we see here. Father, my words, our thoughts, all of our minds fail before the grandeur of them. So I pray, Father, that by your Spirit you might come and help us, Lord, to get just a taste of it, that we might trust you more, 
that we might love you more. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to think this morning about these verses in two ways. First, I want us to think about how they give us freedom from living for self. And second, how they give us freedom to live for God. So first, freedom from living for self. Well, as Matthew said, today is the day we mark Reformation Day when we remember a time in church history, one time when the gospel had become very obscured, when grace was hard to find, when the scriptures had been hidden away. But God worked through flawed men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and others to remind us that the greatest need that we have to be right with God has been accomplished by God, by His grace, not through our own effort. And as Matthew said, in God's timing, we are here looking uh, these few months together at this book of Galatians, one of the books in the New Testament that really helped set fire to the Reformation and help people rediscover the grace that was almost lost. And that's what we've seen so far in this book, that Paul had planted these churches that he's writing this letter to on that foundation, as we say every week, of faith plus nothing equals salvation. Other people had crept in after Paul left, and they had come in and said, no, 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 it's, that's, that's true. Faith in Jesus is good, but you need just to add a little bit of obedience to it. You need to keep the ceremonial law, is what they said. And Paul comes in and just devastates that in passage after passage and says, no, it's only by grace through faith. You don't have to add anything at all. And last week, we saw Paul said, therefore, we've got to take that great truth, that great grace, and work it out in every thought, in every action, in every emotion, in every desire that we have to bring all of us in line with the grace of God. And one of the key emphases of the Reformation, you might know, is a teaching in the Bible called justification. And again, in God's timing, here when we remember Reformation Day and think a lot about justification, which we'll define in a moment, here we come to the first time justification is mentioned in Galatians. And not only is it mentioned for the first time, it's mentioned four times. Three times in verse 16, one time in verse 17. Look back at verse 16 with me. Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is saying it this way, that way, the other way, every which way he can to say your justification is not by works, it is by faith. So what is justification? Well, it is only one part of the great salvation that God gives to us by grace. All of us, as a human being, every part of us is broken and needs to be fixed. And one part of us that is broken is that we need a new record. We need a new record because our record of deeds is not perfect. It's not a record that says, I have perfectly loved God and perfectly loved my neighbor. Instead, my record shows that I have been selfish. It shows that I have lied. It shows that I have gossiped. It shows that I have not used my body in every way that God commands me to, but for sinful and selfish ways. And justification then is to say that that record gets turned around. Our record of debt is canceled and we are given a new record. That that sin that you and I engage in that deserves the right punishment of God's wrath from a holy God has been fully and completely paid for. It's a legal courtroom kind of word that there are charges out against you, and they're true. 
and you've been hauled in before the judge, and he looks and says, not guilty. Not guilty because someone else has paid the debt. Someone else has taken the punishment so that your record of wrongdoing is canceled, but then it's so much better than that, isn't it? Because as the Bible teaches justification, as we see as we'll go, is that it's not just that your record was canceled, but that you're given a new record. And not just any record, you're given the record of Jesus Christ Himself. The perfect record of righteousness. So that you get to walk out of that courtroom, not only with a not guilty declaration over you, but a declaration of as righteous as Jesus Christ. And you didn't have to earn it. You didn't have to do anything. You don't have to even live up to it to keep it. It's just given to you all out of grace. Justification is not only the opposite of condemnation. It is to say you are as righteous as righteous can be. One of the authors I read this week, Phil Riken, said it this way, justification is a legal term, a word used in a court of law. It means to be proclaimed innocent, to be acquitted, to be cleared of all charges. It is, in the biblical sense, to be justified means to be declared righteous before the bar of God's justice. This passage not only says you and I are justified, it tells us who justification is for. Paul says it's for Jew and for Gentile. In verse 15, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. What does that mean? It can sound kind of arrogant, can it? When Paul says, we ourselves, we're Jews by birth. We're not those sinful Gentiles. Well, you have to put it in context. You have to remember where we were last week, if you were with us. We looked at verses 11 through 14. And Paul the apostle, in verses 11 through 14, has an apostolic smackdown with Peter the apostle. Because Paul and Peter had come together and had agreed that justification was not by obedience or by works, but was by faith alone for Jew and for Gentile that you could be a first-class Christian, a first-class member of the church, not based on your ethnicity, not based on your background, not based on your obedience, not based on anything but God's grace given to us through faith. That's what they agreed on. But then Peter goes, well, actually, I'm going to insist that the Gentiles have to also keep the law. They're going to have to also be circumcised, and until they do, I'm not going to eat with them. They're going to have to go eat over there, and I'm going to eat over here with my Jewish friends. And Paul says, I had to call him out because that behavior was not in line or in step with the gospel. And if you look at your translation, it shows that Paul's quote ended at verse 14. But here's the problem. Greek doesn't have quotation marks. And whatever you want to say about the grandeur and greatness of Greek civilization, we have this on them. We have quotation marks. And so translators have to guess, where does Paul's address to Peter end? And he goes back. And he goes back to addressing the Galatians. Some translations in English ended at verse 14. Some end it at the end of what we read today, verse 21. I've got a hunch, and it's only a hunch that it ends at verse 16. But regardless, I think here's what's happening in verse 15 when he sounds kind of arrogant. We're Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. He's still addressing Peter. And he's saying, look, Peter, you and I were Jews by birth. We're not quote-unquote Gentile sinners, and yet we both know, if you go then on to verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So he's saying to Peter, look, if even we Jews aren't justified by works, nobody has to be. 
If you don't have to keep God's law in order to be pleasing to Him, you don't have to keep anything else either, whether you are a, quote, insider or outsider. And this reminds us of what we've said so far in Galatians already, that the gospel justification in this case is for Jew and for Gentile. It's for wicked and it's for righteous both. It's for the really messed up people who don't have their acts together and the good-looking, cleaned-up people who do have their act together. The gospel of justification is for both the wicked, the righteous, the religious, the non-religious, the conservative, the liberal, the church, the non-church, all are equally in need of God's grace because no one can keep God's law. And His law shows us that, right? And so it's easy to see how the wicked are living for themselves. Remember our first point is that this gives us freedom from living for ourselves. The wicked are living for themselves. They're doing what they want to do, when they want to do it, with who they want to do it with, of which we are all part of that crowd at times. But the righteous, the cleaned up people, they're also living for themselves apart from God. Because either they're trying to obey God, or they're just living the quote-unquote good moral life to get something. They're living for themselves. They're using it for their own ends and their own gain, and they're still living for themselves. And at times, we all fall into that crowd as well. And that rubs us the wrong way because we want to point to something that we can stand on, something to give us credibility, something to give us some standing before God or before others. Certainly, I've got something, and the gospel says, nope, it's worse than you think it is. You've got absolutely nothing to stand on. We're all living for self, whether through wickedness or through righteousness. So how do we then gain this justification, this declaration of righteousness after we live for ourselves? Paul makes it clear over and over in verse 16, it is through faith alone. Again, multiple times. He says we're not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So then what is faith? If that's how I'm going to be justified, what is it? Often in our uh, day and time when someone says faith, we think about the power of positive thinking. If you just believe and be certain that something good will happen to you, then it will. Have faith, believe that something good can happen to you too today. But that's not what Paul means by it. Sometimes we mean a high level of certainty in a scientifically unprovable idea or concept, but even that's not exactly what Paul means. Faith in the Bible is this. It's a giving up. Faith begins and ends with a, I give up. I can't. I can't do it. I can't be good enough to get any standing that really lasts or matters before God or anybody else. It is to say, I know I'm a sinner. And I know that Jesus, by His death and resurrection, provides a way for me to be declared innocent. And I agree with that. I agree. I don't just know, but I agree that Jesus died in my place. And then I rest in that work of Jesus on my behalf. That's faith in the Bible. So therefore, then, faith becomes the perfect instrument through which our salvation comes, because it's the opposite of a work. It's the opposite of effort to save yourself. It's a, I give up, I surrender. Jesus did it, not me. It's His works, not mine. And it's faith, of course, in Jesus. The object of one's faith matters uh, in every which way, every possible way. There's this funny little quote from Patrick Swayze, of all people. I can't believe I'm quoting him, but here goes. He says, I have a great deal of faith in faith. If you believe something strongly enough, it becomes true for you. But listen, your faith in Jesus 
Never forget, that is not what saves you. Your faith is not in your faith. So you don't even have to have a high level of certainty to be saved. You can have a weak faith, but as long as your weak faith is in the right thing, you're okay. If your weak faith is in Jesus, who never wavers or changes in what He did on the cross, which can never be canceled or taken away, then even a weak faith saves because it's in a strong Savior. You know, if you think about an airplane, many of you have heard this story before. If you think about an airplane, you have two people who are afraid to fly, or one person who's afraid to fly, one person who is certain, but the one who is afraid to fly has enough faith to at least get on the plane, and someone is absolutely certain that plane is safe and gets them there, and the plane arrives at their destination safely. Even though one had a strong faith and one had a weak faith, they both got there. If our faith is in Jesus, that's what we need. That's all that we need because He is the one that will deliver us from ourselves. We need freedom from ourselves. We need freedom, as you heard in Kevin's prayer, from all those places we look for a counterfeit justification. You and I were made for justification. We were made to have a right and good standing before God. And when it's missing, we go looking for it. Either we try to get it ourselves We try to add to what he did as a counterfeit justification. God, I have to clean myself up in order to come to you. I have to repent. I have to be good enough for a few days in order to come. That's a counterfeit justification. The problem is it's never enough. You can never be good enough long enough. Or we might have a counterfeit justification as we try to replace our standing before God with standing before others. If I can just get those people to like me long enough but it's never enough. Trying to perform to get someone else's smile or approval, when are you finished? You're never finished. Some of us have a counterfeit justification through achievement. If I can just achieve, if I can just do what I think I need to do in business or in family, if my kids can turn out a certain way, then I have credibility, then I have standing. We even do it through church. If I serve long enough, I'll get to be promoted and I'll get to be a leader and then I'll be someone with standing and credibility. But it's also never enough. Our justification counterfeits are never big enough to cover our need. And we're never finished with them. Paul's saying, look, you can be finished. You can be free from your own self-effort. You can be free from your own wicked desire. You can be free from your guilt by trusting in Jesus. And when He gives you not just a cancellation of your debt, but perfect righteousness, then what Jerry Bridges said comes true. He said, justification is a past event with a present reality. Justification is a one-time thing in your life. You don't have to keep coming back to God for more and more justification. It happens once. It happens at conversion. It happens when you believe, whether you know when that moment happened or you're not sure. It happened when you believe. And that's a past event, but it has a present reality. It frees you from having to live for yourself, from having to gain your own counterfeit justification. So the place where you are most ashamed, whether that's for something 20 years ago or this morning, you're free from that if you're in Christ. You're free from the guilt of that. You're free from the shame of that. Right in that place, God gives you a perfect record. Where you are ashamed, you need the present reality of justification. That place where you're most proud you also need the present reality of justification. That thing in your life that you're like, man, that person over there, they don't have the work ethic I do. They don't have the family I do. They don't have the church attendance I do. They don't have 
the honesty or the ethics I do. They don't have as much discipline as I have. They don't take weekends off like I do. They work too much. Wherever that place is where you're most proud, you need the present reality of justification because you can't stand up before God on that stuff. It's too flimsy. It's not enough, right? And so it gives us freedom from living for ourselves. But this truth also, secondly, gives us freedom to live for God. Paul here in verse 17 anticipates the question that always comes up when you teach justification by grace through faith alone. Wait a minute, if I can be as righteous as Jesus by faith alone, then can I do whatever I want? Can I get away with whatever I want to do? Or if I teach justification by grace through faith alone, these people are going to run wild. They're going to go crazy. They're not going to be good people. They're going to get, uh, they're going to get wild. Paul anticipates it in verse 17. He says, if we go along with this, is Christ a servant of sin? If I go ahead and admit that I'm a sinner, is Christ a servant of sin? There's a parallel passage in Romans 6 where he says a very similar thing to what he says here. Certainly not. By no means. No way. That is not follow from what I am teaching, he says. And he goes on to verse 18. He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Here's what he's saying. Look, I am preaching a gospel that says you do not have to obey God's law in order to be accepted by him. If I now show up and say, well, you need just a little bit of obedience to stay in God's good graces, then I am rebuilding what I tore down. I already tore that down. That's not the gospel. And if I do that, then all I do is prove that I'm a sinner because once again, I won't live up to the standard. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law. That means two things. Paul died to the law as a way of being saved. He's no longer trying to use the law to gain his justification. He's dead to that. And how is he dead to that? Because the law showed him he couldn't do it. For through the law, I died to the law. And he's free then from the law's condemnation. He's dead to the condemnation of the law. Yes, he can say, have I loved God perfectly? Have I loved others perfectly? No, I haven't. But there is therefore now no condemnation. I'm dead to the law through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 19, so that I might live for God. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might be free to live for God. What he's saying is since he's no longer under that impossible burden of gaining his own standing before God and others and trying to earn that acceptance, since he's gained God's approval through justification in Christ and he has this new relationship with God, he has found an amazing new freedom to live a life devoted to God and really devoted because his old life was quote-unquote for God, but all he was doing was trying to get something from God. I'm going to obey you well enough and long enough to get something, God. That was old Paul. New Paul says, I will obey you because you loved me. Because you gave me everything I needed and you can't take it away. And that's real freedom to live for God. That's real freedom to live for God. Nothing that we do is going to affect our justification. It doesn't depend on our efforts. And that frees us to live for him in a really true way. And then the law becomes, okay, God, how do I express this love for you? I have this love. How do I express it? Oh, you've given me this law. 
You've given me the Ten Commandments. You've said those Ten Commandments teach me how to love you and love others. That's how I'm going to express my love for you. If that doesn't yet sound like freedom to live for God, go further with me into verse 20. Now, we believe all the Bible is breathed out by God. All the Bible is equally inspired by Him. But some verses pack so much beauty and so much truth into just a few sentences that you just have to slow down and stand in awe of it. And Galatians 2.20 is one of those verses. Paul says, I have freedom to live for God, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's saying this amazing thing. He's saying, not only am I justified, not only am I declared righteous, but that justification comes through and in a real union with Jesus Christ. And this is where words can and do fail us. Because this is one of the most beautiful and profound things that the Bible teaches. That you and I, as a Christian, by God's grace, are united to Jesus. It's not just that He does stuff for us, it's that He actually unites you to Jesus, that Jesus wants to be united to you in the most profound, mystical sense that He even compares it to marriage, that you're His bride. He's one with us, just like a husband and wife are one, a union between us, such that when Jesus died, you died. When Jesus was crucified, I was crucified. That when Jesus was resurrected, you were resurrected. I was resurrected by grace alone. Paul's saying his old self is dead. Again, Phil Riken put it this way. On the cross, four things were nailed. Four things were nailed to the cross. One, the sign that said, here's the king of the Jews. Second thing nailed to the cross, of course, Jesus himself. Third, Paul says in the book of Colossians, our record of debt was nailed to the cross. The fourth thing that was nailed to the cross is us because we're united to Jesus in his death. I have been crucified with Christ so that when Christ died, it's as if your debt was paid right there because it was because you're united to him so that Jesus' death in your place isn't just a legal fiction. It really was you dying and paying for it, but Jesus took it all and now lives in us just as his death was our death, his resurrection is our resurrection. It's a complete renovation, recreation, resurrection of you. So much so that it's Christ who lives in you and the life you still live. It's both. You have died and yet you now live in Christ. The life we now live in the body, we don't live by keeping the law. We live by faith in the Son of God. The life we now live in the body, we don't have to live by keeping the law. We live by faith in the Son of God. That means when I live to God, I'm doing it out of faith, not out of my own effort. Yes, I'm trying. Yes, there's work involved. But it's ultimately and only by faith because it's ultimately and only by God's grace that we have anything. And some of us are so exhausted by trying to live for God. Some of us are so exhausted by the church things that we've done. We always feel like there's more to go. And here, Jesus says, you're united with me. You've been doing it perhaps out of your own effort. Maybe step out of that exhaustion and find the power and freedom that comes. I got to quote Martin Luther, right? If you're doing Reformation Day, Clemson Press, bingo. 
you're probably going to have a quote from Martin Luther in the Reformation Day sermon. He said, by faith you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person, which cannot be separated but remains attached to him forever. You are so cemented to Christ that nothing can pull you apart. What God has joined together, no man can separate, which is so great for a couple of reasons. One, you don't have to defend yourself anymore. Before God or anybody else, you don't have to defend yourself. I came across this uh, story about this one time. It says this, military personnel, when they're sued, as they sometimes are, and the case goes to trial, the case isn't named so-and-so against the name or versus the name of the soldier or the sailor or the airman. Do you know what it says when it enters the record of the case? So-and-so individual versus the branch of the military that person serves in. When that person is sued, they don't go to court alone. It's such-and-such corporation versus the United States Marine Corps. Such-and-such individual versus the United States Army is on trial. It might be that soldier or that sailor that did whatever or didn't do whatever it was, but they're united. They have the resources and identity of the military branch which they serve in behind them. And that is the same way when we go to trial, when we ourselves accuse us, when Satan accuses us. It's now Satan versus what Jesus says. And Jesus says we're righteous. We go with the identity and resources of Jesus. Two, it shows us how to live for God. If you put verse 20 together with the whole thing, we don't live on our own effort. All of this life for God that we're now free to do, we're free to love, is by the power and grace of God that we find in union with Him. Because when we are see ourselves as we are, as completely holy in Christ, then you can have the power to repent with joy. You can have power to conquer whatever fear it is that's ruling your life. To obey the one who did all of that for you, that gives freedom to live for God in the most profound and real way. I want to end this morning with thinking just for a moment about the end of verse 20 and verse 21 when Paul says, Who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I heard this story to illustrate this one time. Roger Nicole says this, If your house was burning down and your whole family escaped, and someone came running up to you as the house is still on fire, and you're there with your family, and he says, let me show you how much I love you, and he runs into the house and dies. You would not say how much that person loved me. You would say, that person wasn't all there. Everything was fine. I didn't need you to save me. I didn't need you to save my family. We were all out here. Why did you run into the house? But if one of your children was still in the house... And someone said, let me show you how much I love you, and ran into that house and rescued your child, but died in the attempt, you would say how much that man loved me. You see, that's what Paul is saying here. I don't nullify the grace of God, because if Jesus died, and if righteousness were through the law, but Jesus died then for no purpose. He actually did something. He didn't just go running to the cross and accomplish nothing. If you and I have to contribute the least little bit to our salvation, then Jesus died for nothing. He ran into the burning house for nothing. But he loved us, and he gave himself for us, and it worked. So you see, go back to where we started. You and I have been loved well. You and I have been loved like this. We have been sacrificed for. So that now we can love 
through the power that is available to us through our union with Christ. Let's pray. Father, again, we are staggered at such great truth that you give us in these verses. Father, we thank you that we do not have to earn it, that we do not have to satisfy your justice on our own, but you love us and accept us by grace through faith alone. We thank you that whether it's a weak faith or a strong faith, you love us. Free us, then I pray, from all the counterfeit justifications that we try to create before you and before others. Help us to enjoy the freedom that you give us. Help us to enjoy and worship you, Father, for our union with you also, for the great love that you give us as Jesus gave himself for us. Help us to have that power. Help us to be different, to really live different and new lives out of the right motivation and out of trust and faith in you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.